This podcast series is presented by Archetype. Archetype is an early-stage venture capital fund focused on backing crypto entrepreneurs who are working to accelerate the decentralized future. We lead investments in C-stage companies and are always open to speaking with crypto-native founders. For more information on our team and portfolio, go to archetype.fund. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Archivite. I'm your host, Catherine Wu. Each week at Archivite, we have on the smartest voices in the crypto industry to tell us about what's top of mind for them. I'm joined today by Jonathan Cao, co-founder and CEO of Satsuma. Formerly, Jonathan was a product engineer at Y Combinator, a founding engineer at Penny, and co-founder and CTO at 17 Cow. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks, Catherine. Great to be here. Just for our listeners out here, this is Jonathan's first ever podcast interview. <laughs> I'm sure he's going to do amazing. So Jonathan, tell us about your founder journey. What led you to start Satsuma? And also, what is Satsuma? Yeah, great question to start us off. So the story really starts way back. I got into crypto back in 2014, actually. I started building an app on Bitcoin back then. And 2016, 2017 came around. I'm an engineer by background. So I started tinkering with Ethereum and playing around with NFTs. And it really wasn't until last year, early 2022, when I started to notice that there are a lot more legitimate engineering teams that were building wide-scale dApps on blockchains. And what really happened was my co-founder and I had started down a completely different direction, as many founding stories go. We were focused on product analytics for dApps and Web3 companies. And as we were building our own data stack, we realized that a lot of the tools that we had at our disposal were pretty hard to use. And that's what led us down the path of working on Satsuma, which is a blockchain data platform for developers to generate custom APIs off of their own smart contracts. So basically, you're building a very important crypto infra company. And, you know, admittedly, sometimes when you think about an infra company or infrastructure. It's not the most exciting topic. It doesn't mean what you're building is not important, but it's not, the, <laughs> it's not like as sexy as like talking about tokens or token economics. <laughs> However, I do think in a slower market, the folks building infra really get to shine because this is when, you know, when yeah. a lot of the newcomers sort of leave and then all the problems that came from like the last hype cycle kind of really are showing, right? And mm. then for folks like yourself who build infra, I think that this is a really good time to do it. Mm -hmm. And Satsuma, specifically, you know, we're kind of venturing to the blockchain data space. But for folks who aren't as familiar, walk us through basically everything that plays a part in blockchain data, like, basically, give us yeah. a walkthrough. <laughs> yeah, I like to start from the most basic level. And forgive me if you're listening to this, and you're an engineer who understands everything. But where I start is really with what underpins a blockchain. And that's just a bunch of nodes. And you've probably heard of a blockchain node before. They perform a lot of tasks. At the most basic level, they have a database somewhere that stores a bunch of data like blocks, transactions, events that are happening. And then on top of that, they have this consensus mechanism where they're talking to each other, exchanging data, and so on. Now, if you go 
one step higher. I also wanted to find another term, which you've probably heard a lot, RPCs or RPC providers. What RPC really means is it's this generic term for an API interface. And what happened was Ethereum popularized what's called their standard EVM-compatible JSON RPC interface. And because subsequent chains all adopted this interface, we now just call that interface RPCs. And the RPC providers also provide that same standard interface. So now we think of Alchemy and Vura and QuickNode as RPCs and RPC providers. So we're starting with nodes. They store a bunch of data. Now, in terms of extracting that data, what you'll find is that the JSON RPC interface that a node exposes is pretty basic. It lets you get things like, hey, give me this one block or give me this set of transactions. But if I want to answer what the TVL of Uniswap's USDC ETH pool at this time is, that's pretty hard to answer. And so what you need to do on top of that low-level data is called indexing. And what indexing really means is you pull out a bunch of raw data, you do some pre-processing, and that pre-processing makes it easier to then at query time answer certain questions. And finally, for the last piece that I'll quickly talk about here, where subgraphs and the graph comes in. So the graph came along in 2018, and they built some amazing technology to help developers in the ecosystem with this problem of indexing. And the main use cases here are that they allow you to store less data on chain, which is very expensive. And as I mentioned before, you can pre-process it. So the graph came along in 2018, They provide a really easy interface for developers to specify what API they want to generate out of their smart contract data, and it speeds up your development time dramatically. Instead of spending a month, maybe now you spend a week on your data. So yeah, that's the high level. I love getting my guests on and then just making them actually give me a history lesson instead. (laughs) Okay, so you mentioned subgraphs. You kind of alluded to challengers with querying. Can you expand on that? So what are some of the unique challenges that Web3 data engineers have to deal with that aren't part of the, I guess, like Web2 world? Yeah, yeah, great question. So in the web two world, all of your data is in your own centralized silo database somewhere. Maybe you have a Postgres database living in your cloud instance. So this is what Facebook does, for example. They just have a bunch of siloed user data. Now, if you talk about web three, a lot of these projects are storing their data on a shared database. They're storing that data on blockchain nodes. And so you have this extra step of extracting and then indexing that data. This can often add up to, say, 30%. Sometimes I've even seen it take 50% of your development time. Just focus on this piece of extracting and then processing the data. And it's not something that you really have to handle in Web2. As I mentioned before, the interface for interacting with blockchain nodes is pretty basic. It's a standard that every single chain uses, so you're not going to have fancy things like give me a Uniswap TVL in that. 
And so you have to take the really basic elements and build up from that data yourself. I want to ask about how this process works, I guess, across different L1s. Great question. Depending on the type of L1, I'll generally break this up into, say, EVM-compatible L1s and non-EVM-compatible L1s. When you hear the term EVM-compatible, one of the main pieces is that for a developer, you get to use the same exact JSON-RPC interface. So if I'm a developer building on, say, Celo, which does have EVM compatibility, I don't have to change that much code on my front end or back end in order to, say, get a transaction or get a block. Now, if you're talking about other L1s, say Solana, they do have completely different interfaces. And that's why it is a much bigger challenge for ADAPT, say, a DeFi protocol to onboard Solana versus, say, another EVM compatible chain. And I think the fact that Ethereum as an ecosystem, as an L1, has been around for longer, meaning that there's Mm, more tooling, there's more info around it, it makes the experience easier. So then back to Satsuma, what role do you play in the blockchain data maze and how does it work? Yeah. So what we started hearing from dApps and projects were that the graph is an amazing piece of technology, but there are some kinks in using it. And there were a ton of projects that have written their subgraphs and have invested a lot in this indexing paradigm, but were facing issues like performance. So how long it takes to index your data, how long it takes for data to show up, and also reliability. So how is my API actually serving me data at all times? And so where we come in is that we have a completely drop-in replacement to the graph. So it takes you less than five minutes to switch over. And we provide you a lot of the benefits that I mentioned before. We improve indexing speeds by 2x or higher. And we have a ton of developer tooling that saves you time on your iteration. So how do you 2x like the speed of indexing data? It it sounds (laughs) like too good to be true a little bit. So I just like, how? Yeah. Yeah. We get this question a lot. And I can't give away all our secret sauce. But we have gone really deep in looking at how subgraphs work. We have optimizations on the infra side, anywhere from nodes to database to whatnot. And a lot of it also involves pre-processing a lot of data and extracting that ourselves. Maybe in the future, instead of a sales call, you just send them this podcast. You're like, Kevin's going <laughs> to ask everything you're asking me, so just listen to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It can, it can go in our FAQ. <laughs> yes. Well, we can't talk about anything in crypto without bringing in the topic of decentralization. And so yeah. as you think about building Satsuma in a Web3 decentralized world, how do you think about the difference between building like a centralized or decentralized data provider? Yeah, that's a great question. Comes up a lot as well. So just to be clear, we are a centralized data provider and we sell typical SaaS or software offering. And I think what I believe is that you don't need decentralization in every single part of your life or in terms of a business, every single area. What I think about is the term sufficient decentralization. 
So you have decentralization where it really, really matters, and you don't need it for the places where it doesn't matter. So where it comes to us, what does matter with a data provider is a few things. One, you want to make sure that they're serving you the accurate data. So that's pretty straightforward. You want that data to be reliable. And ideally, you want to reduce vendor lock-in more than anything else. And so in terms of our customers, what we found is that they actually don't care that we are a centralized provider because we're all following the same open source subgraph specification. It's kind of similar how with the JSON RPC interface that I described earlier for nodes, they're all using the same interface. So you can swap between Infura or QuickNode or Alchemy pretty easily, and you're never locked into one of those. We think of it similarly with subgraphs as well. So a customer can switch to us, they can switch back to running their own infrastructure if they want to. And it's not quite decentralization from the data provider point of view, but it's decentralization because you aren't locked in to one provider. And we found that many of our customers really, really enjoy having a point of contact to go to for technical support whenever they have issues. Yeah. I mean, one thing I always say a lot with friends and family about crypto is crypto is ultimately it's about choice. The difference between like having a choice and not having a choice, at least like where crypto comes in is, you know, if you're born in the U.S., like you're not opt into anything. You're born and you use US dollars, you have a US bank account, blah, 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 like all of that, right? Like there's no like, oh, let me like, hmm. when I turn 18, let me opt into something. It's just, <laughs> it's just there, right? So like, when I phrase it like yeah. that, where I'm like, I'm not trying to convert anybody into crypto. I'm just letting you know that like, it is a choice you can make to opt into a whole system, right? And like it started off as a whole new financial system, but now it goes all beyond that, right? Like, sure, you can choose to use all these centralized apps, but you can also opt in, mm -hmm. To yeah. any, you know, Web3 social, Web3, you know, like all that stuff. So vendor lock-in, yeah. I think, is a is like a subset of that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Definitely agree with that. I'm very curious, you know, since we made that joke about sending this to, to any of your future customer calls, <laughs> who are these types of customers and how does building in this current market affect your strategy and, and how you're positioning yourselves, you know, today or tomorrow or, you know, in the future? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So to answer the first one, just on our customers, we're supporting some of the top users of subgraphs and just top projects in the ecosystem overall. So we're supporting teams at Decentraland, Aragon, we're working with Treasure and Gaming. These are all projects doing great work. In terms of how we think about building in a bear market, it allows you to really focus and have clarity around what you're doing. I think it's actually a surprising positive for us because you remove all the distractions of trying to go to all the events and trying to form partnerships with every single person possible. Instead, what you try to focus on is how can I serve my customers and what do they actually want? For us, my co-founder and I were pretty frugal by nature already, so it doesn't affect us too much. But because of the bear market, we try to stay lean as a team, and we're trying to grow sustainably off of revenue alone. And whether in a bear market or in a bull market, I think if you remain focused on what customers actually want, then you're going to do well. Another thing that I'll add is, to be honest, 
many people ask us this question about building in a bear market, but I almost didn't realize at some point that we were building in a bear market because we were just in this whirlwind of building what our customers wanted, working with our customers very closely and growing with them. And I just looked up and people were were asking me every single time I had a call with them, hey, what's it like uh, with crypto being down all the time? So that's from my perspective as an info provider. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. If I have any founders listening to this, you know, I'm sure this is like a process every startup goes to, right? Where you're like, okay, let's identify our potential users, right? And you like do this exercise and then, but but you're a little bit further along, like you have paying customers. And so how do you go about basically like figuring out especially now that crypto is so big, like what sectors to go after? I think you mentioned gaming just now. I don't know if that's like a core focus, but like, how do you go about, I guess, like mapping that out, prioritizing which sectors, or is it just kind of like, let's try it all, see what sticks? Yeah. To be honest, I I don't have a great answer because everyone's founder journey is different. Some people, they focus very deeply on a sector that they know a lot about. Some people do this sort of market analysis type, type motion. I will say it really goes back to the same thing of customers will pull the product out of you if there is a product to be built. We started out and I think we tried to be too opinionated over what customers wanted. And that actually backfired in some ways. People were were telling us, hey, yeah, I I actually have this problem over here that you should pay attention to. And it took a, a little bit for us to finally pay attention to that problem and switch over. I think there are always exceptions to every rule, but generally for most founders, if you're in this position, that's what you should focus on. It is a delicate balance between building the products that you set out to build and getting sidetracked by a million different requests. And I do think that it's a balancing game. Yeah, yeah. The way I describe it is you should allow your customers to be really opinionated about their problems but you should be opinionated about the solutions themselves and make sure that you delineate between those two and try not Mm. to be opinionated about their problems and vice Mm. versa. Don't let them shape the actual solutions. Wise words. Yeah. There is a lot of conversations being had right now within my circles about just like, why are DAOs so messy and prone to mismanagement and we need a CEO for a DAO? And and I do think part of it is like, in the case of a DAO, the customers and like, or, or in the sense like token holders voices are really, really loud. And right now, like even stewards of a DAO, whatever you want to call them, elected contributors of the DAO, I think it's lost in this like balancing act a little bit, right? Like as a founder of like a Web2 company, I think like you have a little bit more say in the direction, but like a a true like Web3 DAO, I think we're struggling with that balancing act right now. Yeah, yeah. We work with many DAOs and decentralized organizations. The types of organizations that I think do feel like they're working very well are when you have a core group that are making a lot of the decisions. Maybe it's not one person. It's it's almost like a council in some ways or core contributors. But you still have people who are in charge of of many of the decisions because it's really hard to make decisions, uh, especially small ones, as, as a collective. Yeah. Oh, my God. Actually, what is it like selling to a DAO? What is it like as like a potential <laughs> service provider to a DAO? Yeah, I'd say... 
It helps that I have been in crypto for a little while and I'm an engineer. So I feel like I have an advantage on how to speak to uh, these people and, and go to where they are. It's definitely different from sales in a traditional software world. You can't just cold call people or hit them up on LinkedIn. Oftentimes, I'm on Telegram and Discord channels, completely different ways of getting in touch. And then the actual sales process for, for a DAO is really tricky because you have to figure out and navigate whatever process that they might have in place for uh, looking at software. There's trade-offs. On the plus side, if we find our champion, then they, they're going to have a lot of sway and they're going to be able to really help us out and help us navigate. But the downside is a lot of these processes are not built and it's just going to take a lot more time than you think. So just to sum up what you said, first, it's harder to identify who to talk to in a DAO, whereas in a normal company, yeah. you like kind of figure out who you're who you're selling to. Is it hard to have sales calls that are like open <laughs> to like everybody? Like, have you had to do a sales call where it's like 20 <laughs> random people online and you like don't know who you're talking to? Have you had to do that? Yeah, not exactly that. Typically, we will track down the right person. That's typically an engineer at the end of the day, whoever is going to be using our product. And what happens is we have to kind of backtrack from, hey, this user really wants our product to then figuring out, okay, just like in a normal organization, we just have to find our way to navigate a DAO in order to get to a sale. I think you have interesting, weird challenges like, is there going to be a legal entity to sign the documents? That often comes up. Are, are they going to pay in crypto, for example, and so on? Yeah, I think as more service providers start to engage with DAOs and sell to DAOs, and as the DAO landscape like matures, like there is DAO native tooling that makes sense, but there's also the need for just like your you know Web two SaaS like <laughs> software models. Yeah. And I've never actually had a conversation with someone who runs like a SaaS business selling to a DAO because I feel like that's just such yeah. like a different way of working. <laughs> like, I don't know if you end up having to hire salespeople who are like crypto native or something, but yeah. you know, you have that advantage, yeah. but that seems like a whole new challenge. Yeah, it's, it's totally different. This is a sidetrack, but I was at ETH Denver this year and I was meeting up with one of our customers, but I had never seen their face before. I only knew their pseudonym. And so I show up at one of their happy hours and I'm like, hey, do you know where like so-and-so is? And uh, eventually I track down the, the right person. But yeah, I had never seen them before. Yeah. Well, so I come from this like on the other side. So like I am a elected steward of the ENS DAO. And like literally this yeah. morning we had like kind of a potential service provider, like who wants to build something for our mm. like proposals come in and as he was like presenting the demo i was like you know i don't think he knows anybody on this call right now there's like 20 of us no one has their cameras on <laughs> like you know you know maybe like he, he knows me but like he's presenting to a room where he he doesn't know who they are he doesn't know what they do yeah. in the org he doesn't know how they're involved with the doubt it's just it was an open call and he basically was like you yeah. know showing the demo of what this thing would look like and you just oh my god you just gotta roll with it <laughs> You got to write like a how to sell to DAOs, like 101. Yeah. Or someone has to write that because I think that would be very mm, valuable yeah. information. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great idea. I'll queue I'll yeah. that up for a blog. <laughs> yeah, I think this was a nice, this is a good sidetrack. Um, to bring it back, I have one last question for you, which is 
Yeah. Do you have any advice to any listeners out there who would like to start a company one day? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really hefty question. I'd say give yourself time because this is a really, really hard process. And when you see success stories, they're always filtered through a specific lens and narrative that they want you to believe. And the journey is really never that straightforward. Almost all successful companies have had the ups and the downs. So it's really going to take a lot more time than you think. So I think that's one. Another one is really uh, <laughs> pretty basic. Get a therapist. You're going to go through the strongest emotions, both like on the positive and negative ends that you've ever experienced as a founder. And I thought I was a well-balanced person before starting a company. And I've, I've learned a ton by, by having someone who's professionally capable of, of helping me with this stuff. That's actually great advice. And yeah. I think something that should be honestly talked about more. So not as obvious as you think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you, John, for taking the time to talk to us about subgraphs, RPCs, building in a bear market, crypto infra, selling yeah. to the Dow, and advice for <laughs> founders. It was a lot we packed in in 30 minutes. But thank you for your time and hope to see you on the podcast at some point soon. Thanks, Catherine. This is great. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Archivite. We release new episodes every Wednesday. Don't forget to check out previous episodes. If you've missed any, they should be available wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or ideas for future episodes, DM us on Twitter at Archibite. See you next week.